Welcome to Womance's Jane Eyre Public Access Read-Along. I'm your co-host, Isabeau. I'm your co-host, Morgan. And I read the even chapters, and we find ourselves here at chapter 10. So back in chapter 9, which you might have remembered from me reading it, spring has come to Lowood, and with it, an outbreak of typhus? Jane's okay, but it's sort of created a hospital situation at the school, and Jane and the other students who are unaffected have been able to kind of run wild. But over that course of time, Jane's friend, Helen Burns, became very sick with consumption, and Jane and her spent her last night alive together, but Helen Burns has died. All right, chapter 10. Hitherto I have recorded, in detail, the events of my insignificant existence. To the first ten years of my life I have given almost as many chapters, but this is not to be a regular autobiography. I am only bound to invoke memory where I know her responses will possess some degree of interest. Therefore, I now pass a space of eight years almost in silence. A few lines only are necessary to keep up the links of connection. Do you feel like this is a personal attack on certain other autobiographies that- David Copperfields? Yeah. When the typhus fever had fulfilled its mission of devastation at Lowood, it gradually disappeared from thence, but not till its virulence and the number of its victims had drawn public attention on the school. Inquiry was made into the origin of the scourge, and by degrees various facts came out which excited public indignation in a high degree. The unhealthy nature of the site, the quantity and quality of the children's food, the brackish fetid water used in its preparation, the pupils' wretched clothing and accommodations, all these things were discovered, and the discovery produced a result mortifying to Mr. Brocklehurst but beneficial to the institution. Several wealthy and benevolent individuals in the county subscribed largely for the erection of a more convenient building in a better situation. New regulations were made, improvements in diet and clothing introduced. The funds of the school were entrusted to the management of a committee. Mr. Brocklehurst, who from his wealth and family connections could not be overlooked, still retained the post of treasurer, but he was aided in the discharge of his duties by gentlemen of rather more enlarged and sympathizing minds. His office of inspector too was shared by those who knew how to combine reason with strictness, comfort with economy, compassion with uprightness. The school, thus improved, became, in time, a truly useful and noble institution. I remained an inmate of its walls after its regeneration for eight years, six as pupil and two as teacher, and in both capacities I bear my testimony to its value and importance. This is another part that's left out of most of Jane Eyre's movie adaptations. And I know we talk about the adaptations a lot, but I think that's important whenever you consider like the public unconscious of Jane Eyre, because more people have probably seen a movie or a miniseries than have read the book, which, you know, is a big bully. But it's kind of a disservice, you know, to not include this and the fact that like things do get like an explanation. Because we often see like Helen Burns's death, Jane Eyre's mortification right these like scenes of violence and then we see her like going away to her new post right it's like the tonal change is never explained and it might be worthwhile to say like everyone of that historical period was like this is wrong once they found out about it the conscience of the county was quickened yeah and i think people oftentimes like try to 
justify the choices of like history by saying like it was accepted at that time. That was just the standard of the day when really it wasn't. And the reason that happens is because we have lapses in the popular record of, you know, for example, when the Constitution was created, right? People knew how bad slavery was and knew Mm -hmm. how bad it was that they were weeping and screaming in the debates about not allowing it into the Constitution and like how much we really morally bent ourselves, twisted in order to remove that passage. And, you know, yet again, whenever reparations were thrown out at the last minute, people knew that was wrong and were, you know, having really emotional reactions. It wasn't that like, that's the way things were. No, things weren't that way. A handful of powerful people decided they were that way, and then everyone else just accepted it eventually. Because they had to. During these eight years, my life was uniform, but not unhappy, because it was not inactive. I had the means of an excellent education placed within my reach, a fondness for some of my studies, and a desire to excel in all. Together with a great delight in pleasing, my teachers, especially such as I loved, urged me on. I availed myself fully of the advantages offered me. In time, I rose to be the first girl of the first class. Then I was invested with the office of teacher, which I discharged with zeal for two years. At the end of that time, I altered. Miss Temple, through all changes, had thus far continued superintendent of the seminary. To her instruction, I owed the best part of my acquirements. Her friendship and society had been my continual solace. She had stood me in the stead of mother, governess, and latterly companion. At this period, she married, removed with her husband, a clergyman, an excellent man, almost worthy of such a wife, to a distant county, and consequently was lost to me. From the day she left, I was no longer the same. With her was gone every set feeling, every association that made Lowood in some degree a home to me. I had imbibed from her something of her nature and much of her habits, more harmonious thoughts, what seemed better regulated feelings had become the inmates of my mind. I had given an allegiance to duty and order. I was quiet. I believed I was content. The eyes of others, usually even to my own, I appeared a disciplined and subdued character. But destiny in the shape of Reverend Mr. Naismith came between me and Miss Temple. I saw her in her traveling dress step into a post-chase shortly after her marriage ceremony. I watched the chase mount the hill and disappear beyond its brow, and then retired to my own room, and there spent in solitude the greatest part of the half-holiday granted in honor of the occasion. I walked about the chamber most of the time. I imagined myself only to be regretting my loss and thinking how to repair it, but when my reflections were concluded, and I looked up and found that the afternoon was gone and the evening far advanced, another's discovery dawned on me, namely, that in the interval I had undergone a transition transforming process, that my mind had put off all it had borrowed of Miss Temple, or rather that she had taken with her the serene atmosphere I had been breathing in her vicinity, and that now I was left in my natural element and beginning to feel the stirring of old emotions. It did not seem as if a prop were withdrawn, but rather as if a motive were gone. It was not the power to be tranquil which had failed me, but the reason for tranquility was no more. My world had for some years been in Lowood. My experience had been of its rules and systems. Now I remembered that the real world was wide. 
and that a varied field of hopes and fears of sensations and excitements awaited those who had courage to go forth into its expanse to seek real knowledge of life amidst its perils. I went to my window, opened it, and looked out. There were the two wings of the building, there was the garden, there were the skirts of low wood, there was the hilly horizon. My eye passed all over objects to rest on those most remote, the blue peaks. It was those I longed to surmount, all within their boundary of rock and heath seemed prison ground, exile limits. I traced the white road winding round the base of one mountain and vanishing in a gorge between two. How I longed to follow it further. I recalled the time when I had traveled that very road in a coach. I remember descending that hill at twilight. An age seemed to have elapsed since the day which brought me first to Lowood. I had never quitted it since. My vacations had all been spent at school. Mrs. Reed had never sent for me to Gateshead. Neither she nor any of her family had ever been to visit me. I had no communication by letter or message with the outer world. School rules, school duties, school habits and notions and voices and faces and phrases and costumes and preferences and antipathies. Such was what I knew of existence. And now I felt that it was not enough. I tired of the routine of eight years in one afternoon. I desired liberty. For liberty, I gasped. For liberty, I uttered a prayer. It seemed scattered on the wind, then faintly blowing. I abandoned it and framed a humbler supplication for change, stimulus. That petition, too, seemed swept off into vague space. Then I cried, half desperate, grant me at least a new servitude. This is a really long-winded way of describing FOMO. <laughs> Like your best friend gets married, gets in a little carriage to go have sex. And you're like, I want it too. <laughs> you're left with your like afternoon off. Hear a bell ringing the hour of supper called me downstairs. I was not free to resume the interrupted chain of my reflections till bedtime. Even then, a teacher who occupied the same room with me kept me from the object to which I longed to recur by a prolonged effusion of small talk. This is one of those times where our books are like different translations. It's like weirdly like fraught. Mine says, with me kept me from the subject to which I longed to recur instead of the object to which I longed to recur. Very weird. It's like a real Hegelian. No kidding. In the last chapter, I noticed that some of the flowers were different. Like you had dahlias and something else and I had roses and willows. And I was like, why would you even change that? To what purpose? So strange. So strange. English is weird. By a prolonged effusion of small talk. How I wished sleep would silence her. It seems as if could I but go back to the idea which had last entered my mind as I stood at the window, some inventive suggestion would rise for my relief. Miss Grice snored at last. She was a heavy Welshwoman, and till now her habitual nasal strains had never been regarded by me in any other light than as a nuisance. Tonight I hailed the first deep notes with satisfaction. I was debarrassed. What does that mean? As we read, I realize how many of these words I've always just like seamlessly breathed in my own mind. But then whenever I'm called upon to say them out loud, I'm like at an utter loss. Debarrassed, relieved, freed from the French debrassé. Charlotte oh. Bronte uses the commoner English form disembarrassed in the sense of freed from embarrassment or shyness. But she doesn't say disembarrassed. She says debarrassed. She says debarrassed here, but apparently later on she says disembarrassed. disembarrassed. I was debarrassed of interruption. My half-effaced thought instantly revived. 
A new servitude. There is something in that. I soliloquized mentally, be it understood. I did not talk aloud. I know there is because it does not sound too sweet. It is not like such words as liberty, excitement, enjoyment, delightful sounds truly, but no more than sounds for me and so hollow and fleeting that it is mere waste of time to listen to them. But servitude? That must be a matter of fact. Anyone may serve. I have served here eight years. Now all I want is to serve elsewhere. Can I not get so much of my own will? Is not the thing feasible? Yes, yes, the end is not so difficult. If I had only a brain active enough to ferret out the means of attaining it. Sorry, I keep interrupting. But this is so like perfectly encapsulates dream management, Mm -hmm. ambition management. And it also serves as like every other governess goes to a big house story that's going to come after this, I feel like is functioning with like, you have this internal understanding already built in Mm -hmm. that Jane Eyre has laid out for you. And we never have to lay it out again. It's canonical. The dream management aspect of it. Like, I want all of these big romantic ideas, but I'm not going to allow myself to express that. I'm going to say I want something small. Mm -hmm. Attainable. Something attainable. And then by seeking out that attainable thing, I'm actually going to fall into the impossible. I sat up in bed by way of arousing the said brain. It was a chilly night. I covered my shoulders with a shawl. And then I proceeded to think again with all my might. What do I want? A new place in a new house amongst new faces under new circumstances. I want this because it is of no use wanting anything better. What was better in Northern England at this time though? Can I be honest? Nothing. Besides like- Money. Being born a wealthy man. Yeah. How do people do to get a new place? They apply to friends, I suppose. I have no friends. There are many others who have no friends who must look about for themselves and be their own helpers. And what is their resource? I could not tell. Nothing answered me. I then ordered my brain to find a response and quickly. It worked and worked faster. I felt the pulses throb in my head and temples, but for nearly an hour, it worked in chaos and no result came from its efforts. Feverish with vain labor, I got up and took a turn in my room, undrew the curtain, noticed a star or two, shivered with cold, and again crept to bed. A kind fairy, in my absence, had surely dropped the required suggestion on my pillow. For as I lay down, it came quietly and naturally to my mind. Those who want situations advertise. You must advertise in the Blankshire Herald. How? I know nothing about advertising. Replies rose smooth and prompt now. You must enclose the advertisement and the money to pay for it under a cover directed to the editor of the Herald. You must put it, the first opportunity you have, into the post at Lowton. Answers must be addressed to J.E. at the post office there. You can go and inquire in about a week after you send your letter. If any are come, act accordingly. So I love this. The first part of this is like very much like a how to visualize your goals and set about achieving them. I know. And then the second part is like how to become a governess. God bless Charlotte. She's like, you want to change your situation, you middle-class human being who like wants to see a little more of the world? Here's how you go about it. You don't know anyone who's ever done this before? Here's how you advertise in the local paper. You gots to send the money with the advert. With the cover. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a real, like, utilitarian text. And I know that some people who read it immediately picked up on that. And I know some people were like, And every other part of it is fiction, you know? (laughs) 
it's supposed to be an autobiography and I think like autobiographies tend to include these like little details. I did it and you can too. Yeah, I don't know if it's like actually instructive or just like, and here are some details of my life. Probably instructive though. A little instructive at the very least. This scheme I went over twice. Thrice! It was then <laughs> digested in Why? my mind. <laughs> it was then digested in my mind. I had it in a clear, practical form. I felt satisfied and fell asleep. With earliest day I was up, I had my advertisement written, enclosed, and directed before the bell rang to rouse the school. It ran thus. A young lady, accustomed to tuition, had I not been a teacher two years, is desirous of meeting with a situation in a private family where the children are under 14. I thought that as I was barely 18, hot, it would not do to undertake the guidance of pupils near my own age. She is qualified to teach the usual branches of a good English education together with French, drawing, and music. In those days, reader, this now narrow catalog of accomplishments would have been held tolerably comprehensive. Address J.E. Post Office, Lowton, Shire. This document remained locked in my drawer all day. After tea, I asked leave of the new superintendent to go to Lowton in order to perform some small commissions for myself and one or two of my fellow teachers. Permission was readily granted. I went. It was a walk of two miles and the evening was wet, but the days were still long. I visited a shop or two, slipped the letter into the post office and came back through the heavy rain with streaming garments, but with a relieved heart. The succeeding week seemed long. It came to an end at last, however, like all sublunary things, and once more, towards the close of a pleasant autumn day, I found myself afoot on the road to Lowton. A picturesque track it was, by the way, lying along the side of the beck and through the sweetest curves of the dale. But that day, I thought more of the letters that might or might not be awaiting me at the little burr, whether I was bound, than the charms of lee and water. My ostensible errand on this occasion was to get measured for a pair of shoes, so I discharged that business first, and when it was done, I stepped across the clean and quiet little street from the shoemakers to the post office. It was kept by an old dame who wore horn spectacles on her nose and black mittens on her hands. Are there any letters for J.E.? I asked. She peered at me over her spectacles, and then she opened a drawer and fumbled among its contents for a long time, so long that my hopes began to falter. At last, having held a document before her glasses for nearly five minutes she presented it across the counter accompanying the act by another inquisitive and mistrustful glance it was for je is there only one i demanded there are no more said she and i put it in my pocket and turned my face homeward i could not open it then rules obliged me to be back by eight it was already half past seven job application blues is there only one there is only one And it says, thank you for your application. We have moved in a different direction. We wish you good luck. Various duties awaited me on my arrival. I had to sit with the girls during their hour of study. Then it was my turn to read prayers, to see them to bed. Afterwards, I supped with my other teachers. Even when we finally retired for the night, the inevitable Miss Grice was still my companion. We had only a short end of candle in our candlestick, and I dreaded lest she should talk till it was all burnt out. It's so funny, like, how mean she's being, but also, like, ugh, what a goon. What a grump. What a grump. I dreaded lest she should talk till it was all burnt out. Fortunately, however, the heavy supper she had eaten produced a soporific effect. She's such a little jerk. (laughs) She was already snoring before I had finished... (laughs) 
I have a dream now, and I do not have to put up with your bullshit, Miss Grice. You big dinner eating soporific. Had a soporific effect. She was already snoring before I finished undressing. <laughs> Justice for Miss Grice. Seriously. There still remained an inch of candle. I now took out my letter. The seal was an initial F. I broke it. The contents were brief. If J.E., who advertised in the Blankshire Herald of last Thursday, possesses the acquirements mentioned, and if she is in a position to give satisfactory references as to character and competency, a situation can be offered her where there is but one pupil, a little girl under 10 years of age, and where the salary is 30 pounds per annum. J.E. is requested to send references, name, address, and all particulars to the direction. Mrs. Fairfax, Thornfield, near Millcote, Blankshire. I examined the document long. The writing was old-fashioned and rather uncertain, like that of an elderly lady. The circumstance was satisfactory. A private fear had haunted me that in thus acting for myself and by my own guidance, I ran the risk of getting into some scrape, and above all things, I wished the result of my endeavors to be respectable, proper, and regal. I now felt that an elderly lady was no bad ingredient in the business I had on hands. Mrs. Fairfax. I saw her in a black gown and widow's cap. Frigid, perhaps, but not uncivil. A model of elderly English respectability. Thornfield. That, doubtless, was the name of her house. A neat, orderly spot, I was sure. Though I failed in my efforts to conceive a correct plan of the premises. Millcote, Shire. I brushed up my recollections of the map of England. Yes, I saw it. Both the Shire and the town. Blankshire was 70 miles nearer London than the remote county where I now resided. That was a recommendation to me. I longed to go where there was life and movement. Millcote was a large manufacturing town on the banks of the A. A busy place enough, doubtless, so much the better. It would be a complete change at least. Not that my fancy was much captivated by the idea of long chimneys and clouds of smoke, but I argued Thornfield will probably be a good way from the town. You're probably wondering how much 30 pounds in 1830 when this book was published converts to today? I am. You ready? 3,000 pounds. That's not very much. I mean, she gets room and board and probably two dresses a year. Those dresses were expensive. But we know Mr. Rochester is buying that little girl a lot of fucking dresses. He is. Chantilly lace. He can afford more than 30 per annum. It's true. That's a miserly sum. Cheap. Cheap. Do you think it's Miss Fairfax or do you think it's Mr. Rochester setting that rate? I think Mr. Rochester has so much money that he like is so rich he doesn't understand how money works. So I think it is Miss Fairfax who's offering this shit rate. He's like $30 per year for the governess and then here's $20 for a gallon of milk. Yeah, exactly. And Miss Fairfax is like, mm-hmm, that's right, Mr. Rochester. <laughs> that is correct. That is how much milk costs. I bet Miss Fairfax is in some like terrible long-term contract and she's like, there's no way this governess is making more than me per <laughs> annum. <laughs> 7,000 pounds, my rear end. <laughs> Over my dead body. Let us know on social media, do you think it was Rochester or Fairfax who set the salary? Great question. Here the socket of the candle dropped and the wick went out. Next day, new steps were to be taken. My plans could no longer be confined to my own breast. I must impart them in order to achieve their success. Having sought and obtained an audience of the superintendent during the noontide recreation, I told her I had a prospect of getting a new situation where the salary would be double what I now receive for at low what I would only get 15 per annum. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, I guess they didn't have to 
like go out to cocktail bars back then and movies. No. But it still sucks. God, I didn't God, realize how like disparate the pay gap was back then. Pretty intense. And requested she would break the matter for me to Mr. Brocklehurst or some of the committee and ascertain whether they would permit me to mention them as references. She obligingly consented to act as a mediatrix. Ooh, I'm gonna start using that word. I love anything that ends in tricks. Agreed. She consented to act as a mediatrix in the matter. The next day, she laid the affair before Mr. Brocklehurst, who said that Mrs. Reed must be written to, as she was my natural guardian. A note was accordingly addressed to that lady, who returned for answer that I might do as I pleased. She had long relinquished all interference in my affairs. This note went the round of the committee, and at last, after what appeared to me most tedious delay, formal leave was given me to better my condition if I could. And an assurance added that as I had always conducted myself well, both as teacher and pupil at Lowood, a testimonial of character and capacity signed by the inspectors of that institution should forthwith be furnished me. This testimonial I accordingly received in about a week, forwarded a copy of it to Mrs. Fairfax, and got the lady's reply stating that she was satisfied and fixing that day fortnight as the period for my assuming the post of governess in her house. Now busied myself with preparations, the fortnight passed rapidly. I had not a very large wardrobe though it was adequate to my wants, and the last day sufficed to pack my trunk, the same I had brought with me eight years ago from Gateshead. The box was corded, the card nailed on, in half an hour the carrier was to call for it to take it to Lowton, whither I myself was to repair at an early hour the next morning to meet the coach. I had brushed my black stuff traveling dress, prepared my bonnet, gloves, and muff, sought in all my drawers to see that no article was left behind, and now, having nothing more to do, I sat down and tried to rest. I could not. Though I had been on foot all day, I could not now repose an instant. I was too much excited. A phase of my life was closing tonight, a new one opening tomorrow, impossible to slumber in the interval. I must watch feverishly while the change was being accomplished. Miss, said a servant who met me in the lobby where I was wandering like a troubled spirit, a person below wishes to see you. The carrier, no doubt, I thought, and ran downstairs without inquiry. I was passing the back parlor, or teacher's sitting room, the door of which was half open, to go to the kitchen when someone ran out. It's her, I'm sure. I could have told her anywhere, cried the individual, who stopped my progress and took my hand. I looked. I saw a woman attired like a well-dressed servant, matronly, yet still young, very good-looking, with black hair and eyes, and lively complexion. Well, who is it? She asked in a voice, and with a smile I half-recognized. You've not quite forgotten me, I think, Miss Jane. In another second, I was embracing and kissing her rapturously. Bessie! 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 Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was all I said. Whereat she half laughed, half cried, and we both went into the parlor. By the fire stood a little fellow of three years old in plaid frock and trousers. That is my little boy, said Bessie directly. Then you are married, Bessie? Yes, nearly five years since, to Robert Levin, the coachman, and I have a little girl besides Bobby there that I've christened Jane. Aww. I mean, there were only five names back then, but it's still nice. I thought so too. And you don't live at Gateshead? I live at the lodge. The old porter has left. Well, and how do they all get on? Tell me everything about them, Bessie, but sit down first. And Bobby, come and sit on my knee, will you? But Bobby preferred sidling over to his mother. <laughs> You're not grown so very tall, Miss Jane, nor so very stout, continued Mrs. Levin. I dare say they've not kept you too well at school. Miss Reed is the head and shoulders taller than you are, and Miss Georgiana would make two of you in a breath. Georgiana is handsome, I suppose, Bessie. Very. She went up to London last winter with her mama 
and there everybody admired her and a young lord fell in love with her, but his relations were against the match. And what do you think? He and Miss Georgiana made it up to run away, but they were found out and stopped. It was Miss Reed that found them out. I believe she was envious. And now she and her sister lead a cat and dog life together. They're always quarreling. Well, and what of John Reed? Oh, he's not doing so well as his mama could wish. He went to college and he got plucked, I think they call it, and then his uncles wanted him to be a barrister and study the law, but he is such a dissipated young man. They will never make much of him, I think. Plucked means expelled due to failing exams. What does he look like? He's very tall. Some people call him a fine-looking man, but he has such thick lips. <laughs> <laughs> And Mrs. Reed? Mrs. looks stout and well enough in the face, but I think she's not quite easy in her mind. Mr. John's conduct does not please her. He spends a deal of money. Did she send you here, Bessie? No, indeed. But I have long wanted to see you, and when I heard that there had been a letter from you and that you were going to another part of the country, I thought I'd just set off and get a look at you before you were quite out of my reach. I'm afraid you are disappointed in me, Bessie, I said, this laughing. I perceived that Bessie's glance, though it expressed regard, did in no shape denote admiration. No, Miss Jane, not exactly. You are genteel enough. You look like a lady, and it is as much as ever I expected of you. You were no beauty as a child. <laughs> I smiled at Bessie's frank answer. I felt it was correct, but I confess I was not quite indifferent to its import. At 18, most people wish to please, and the conviction that they have not an exterior likely to second that desire brings anything but gratification. I dare say you are clever enough, though, continued Bessie by way of solace. What can you do? Can you play on the piano? A little. There was one in the room. Bessie went and opened it and then asked me to sit down and give her a tune. I played a waltz or two, and she was charmed. The Miss Reeds could not play as well, she said exultingly. I always said you would surpass them in learning. And can you draw? That is one of my paintings over the chimney piece. It was a landscape in watercolors, of which I had made a present to the superintendent in acknowledgement of her obliging mediation with the committee on my behalf, and which she had framed and glazed. Well, that is beautiful, Miss Jane. It is a fine picture as any Miss Reed's drawing master could paint, let alone the young ladies themselves. Who could not come near it? And have you learnt French? Yes, Bessie. I can both read and speak it. And you can work on muslin and canvas? I can. Oh, you are quite a lady, Miss Jane. I knew you would be. You will get on whether your relations notice you or not. There was something I wanted to ask you. Have you ever heard anything from your father's kinfolk, the heirs? Never in my life. Well, you know, Mrs. always said they were poor and quite despicable, and they may be poor, but I believe they are much gentry as the Reeds are. For one day, nearly seven years ago, Mr. Eyre Candigates hadn't wanted to see you. Mrs. said you were at school 50 miles off. He seemed so much disappointed, for he could not stay. He was going on a voyage to a foreign country, and the ship was to sail from London in a day or two. He looked quite a gentleman, and I believe he was your father's brother. What foreign country was he going to, Bessie? An island thousands of miles off, where they make wine, the butler did tell me. Madeira, I suggest. Yes, that's it. That is the very word. So he went? Yes. He did not stay many minutes in the house. Mrs. was very high with him. She called him afterwards a sneaking tradesman. My robber believes he was a wine merchant. Very likely I returned. Or perhaps clerk or agent to a wine merchant. Bessie and I conversed about old times an hour longer. And then she was obliged to leave me. I saw her again for a few minutes the next morning at Lowton while I was waiting for the coach. We parted finally at the door of the Brocklehurst Arms there. Each went her separate way. She set off for the brow of Lowood Fell to meet the conveyance which was to take her back to Gateshead. I mounted the vehicle which was to bear me to new duties and a new life in the unknown environs of Millcote.
The unknown environs of Millcote. Mm-hmm. I totally forgot about this incident where her uncle came to visit her. Mm-hmm. That's foreshadowing. I 100% forgot that Bessie fucking shows up to be like, you okay, babe? Yeah, and it's so great to hear what's been going on with the reads. It's so satisfying in that Bessie has this nice, happy life, and they get to gossip, and that we get assurances as Jane is about to depart for a new life that she had made the correct decision in departing for her previous new life, right? And get those assurances. I just love it. I just found this to be a very satisfactory chapter. What do you think? Even though it's one that I've forgotten. <laughs> so utterly. And I think like that's one of the things where a good transition functions. Like this chapter is purely transition. It's from the death and the end of Lowood's education to Thornfield Hall. And like what a beautiful entire encapsulation transition chapter where we just like move. A good tone shift, right? Mm-hmm. We've got to go into Thornfield with like a real sense of optimism and possibility, right? So Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. All right. Any other thoughts about this chapter? I'm really pleased that Bessie named her daughter Jean. I am just pleased as punch with everything that's been going on with Bessie. I also love Georgiana's little dalliance. That her sister uncovers and then like ruins for her. Yeah, the Madeira wine thing is also like a great little touch. I just, uh, I really enjoy this. It's just very pleasing. Mm-hmm. Just a nice pleasurable little follow-up to chapter nine. Yeah, it's funny. Like it really breaks the tension that chapter nine created, which is really necessary. Yeah. Yeah. With that. Loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mm-hmm. Mwah. <laughs>